When I was about uh, 13 or 14 years old, 7th or 8th grade, my family was on our way back from a camping trip in Colorado. We'd go out there uh, every year, typically. My mom grew up there. My grandfather lived out there, had aunts and uncles. And uh, towards the end of the summer, after a lot of the farm work was done, before school started and football practice started, we would head to Colorado and we would camp and visit family. On this particular year, uh, my uh, uncle and his family were along with us. And my uncle convinced my dad to make a detour, and we went uh, through a different part of western Kansas on the way back, and we stopped and saw Monument Rocks. Have anybody, has anybody been to Monument Rocks? Well, we stopped to see them. My uncle thought it would be kind of fun to see. And, and back then, things, I'm sure, uh, I haven't been there since, but I've heard it's different now. But back then, you could go up to the rocks, you could climb on them, you could just walk all over them and look around, look around which is a lot of fun, as you can imagine, for a bunch of cousins. Well, the, after a while, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, I don't know how long it was, the, our parents called for us to come back to the parking lot. And so everybody else jumped off and went back, except for me, I wanted to squeeze the last climb out of this, so I climbed up again and climbed down and, and uh, came to a ledge which was about four or five feet off the ground, and I jumped down and landed in the dirt. And I heard a rattling noise behind me. Sure enough, I looked over my shoulder, and there was a rattlesnake coiled up and hissing and rattling and buzzing right behind me. Now, I wouldn't do this today, but growing up on a farm, if you see a snake as a farm kid, you, you, you kill it, right? And I'd never seen a rattlesnake outside of a zoo before, and I thought to myself, I would really like those rattles. So I climbed up on the ledge again, and I, I found a, a flat rock about the size of a large plate, and I threw it down as hard as I could with the idea of crushing the snake, but I, but I missed it. It scared it. It wasn't very happy, and it took off through the dust, headed for the grass, which was about maybe 20 feet away. Now, I'd already shown poor judgment. Kids, do not try this at home. But as I said, I was a farm kid, and I wanted those rattles, so I jumped down, I grabbed that rock, and I ran after that snake. Um, at that time, I could tell it was probably about three feet long, and it wasn't very happy. It was moving quickly, so I, and I knew I had to get to it before it hit the grass, so I would never see it and get those rattles. You know, isn't that the way we as human beings sometimes do things? We get ourselves in a situation we don't show good judgment, and instead of removing ourselves from the situation, we chase after the very thing, the very relationship, the very whatever that can hurt us, maybe even kill us. Well, I caught up to that snake, and I threw the rock down again. This time, with good aim, it landed on its head, and I jumped on top of the rock. And I jumped up and down until the snake stopped moving. My, my dad showed up, and my mom, and they were shaking their heads. They couldn't believe what I'd done, and my dad didn't say a word, got out his pocket knife, cut off those rattles. And for years, those rattles sat in a jar in my old bedroom in my parents' house until just a couple years ago when I found out my mom had finally thrown them away. I will never forgive her for that. <laughs> now, most people don't like snakes, although there's a few oddballs. My, my youngest son, Reed, likes snakes. I'm not sure why, but he does. But we usually run away from them. We don't run after them. As humans, we have an instinctive revulsion to, to them. They make our skin crawl. When we see them, we usually want to, to kill them or avoid them altogether. There's something built into us. We just don't like snakes. Even though we have movies like Snakes on a Plane and stuff like that, and Anaconda, and I guess we like to be scared by them or something. Well, today we continue our sermon series, Back to the Future. And in this series, we're looking back at Old Testament stories, and we're finding types of Jesus. 
In other words, words, stories which point us to, to the future, which foreshadow what Christ would do when he came to earth as one of us. And the Old Testament story we're digging into today, we find a snake story. And there are a lot of snakes. Now, if you don't like snakes, just imagine being in this situation. You're in the desert. There's no modern medicine. No tall leather boots. No anti-venom. No painkillers. And you're surrounded by poisonous snakes. And they're biting people. And people are getting sick. And people are dying. That's what's happening here in Numbers 21. So let's set the context a little bit here. The book of Numbers was written to record what happened during the Israelite people when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. That's why it's called the book of Numbers. It's, it's an accounting, a record. And, and this snake story, this, this snake story takes place toward the end of the 40 years, and it's the last of the five what are called grumbling stories in Numbers. Now, the grumbling stories, you can probably figure out what they're about, but the grumbling stories are called that because the people of Israel were an ungrateful bunch. They were constantly in a bad mood, it seemed. They were complaining, and they were throwing fits. Now, we can have a little sympathy for them here. They've been wandering in the desert for almost 40 years, after all. They've been living in tents, and they're eating the same thing over and over again, manna from heaven. And like spoiled children who aren't grateful for what they have, they complain and they grumble. The fifth time in Numbers. Now, you remember manna, right? What's behind the story of manna? Manna was the the food from heaven that God would drop down every morning to sustain his people. It was a a gift from God, the provision of God. He sent manna every morning to teach them a lesson, that they would have all their needs met in him, that he would provide for them if they simply trusted to him and looked to him. So manna was a gift from God. It was a provision of God, and yet the people grew tired of it, and they rejected it. They said it wasn't good enough. It wasn't sufficient. They wanted more. They wanted something different than what God had provided. You know, if you think about it as an aside, that is the root of sin, this this attitude. That what you've given me, God, isn't enough. That your will for me isn't correct. That your provision isn't sufficient. That what I have in life isn't enough. If I only had that girlfriend, if I only had that spouse, that house, that job, that level of income, that health, those looks, those talents, whatever. It's that attitude that God, what he's given to us, isn't enough. And that's what was happening with the people of Israel in this passage. And because God is a God who wants us to relate to him out of choice, he gives us free will. We can do that. We can reject what God has given us. We can say it's not enough. We can look to other places and other things to get our needs and provisions met. But there are consequences. There always have been. And the ultimate consequence, we're told in the Bible, for rebellion against God is death. And just like in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, where a snake and a lack of trust in God combined to bring death to humankind, so again does a lack of trust in God and a whole bunch of snakes combine to bring death in Numbers 21. You know, God is a gracious God, the Bible tells us, that he's long-suffering and patient, that he doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to be saved. And yet there seems to be one thing that God does not tolerate well. 
and that's ingratitude. He has delivered these people from slavery in Egypt. Slavery. They've been enslaved for 500 years. And he's helped them out of tough spots time and again. In the desert where food is scarce, he sends food every morning. And yet in spite of all of this, his people complain. They grumble. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, that's an all-too-common attitude with us. You know, it's really easy in life to focus on what we do not have instead of what we do have. It's very natural to go through life with a, a negative mindset, grumbling and complaining, rather than being thankful and grateful for how God has helped us, how God has provided for us, how he's delivered us. And that's what happened in Numbers 21. And so God does something to get their attention. He does something to... Uh, put in place an attitude adjustment, and snakes show up and people begin to get bit and they begin to die. The Israelites had rebelled against God. They had bitten the hand that had been feeding them, God's hand, and now, ironically, perhaps poetic justice, they were being bitten back. And in this story, we learn a lot about who God is. We learn a lot about human nature and sin. And we learn a lot about how we can be saved. The first thing we learn is a need for confession. Although the people of Israel numbers are chronic complainers, they are not completely clueless here. When people around them are getting bitten and dying, they go to Moses and ask for help. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. The first step in being saved is to acknowledge our need for salvation. The people in this story turned to God and confessed their sin, their wrongdoing, and, and they asked for his help. And God mercifully responded. God will always respond when somebody comes to him sincerely asking for mercy and help and grace. He will always, always answer that request. So no matter what we have done, no matter what our situation in life is, God will respond when we come to him sincerely asking for mercy and help. We see the response in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Kind of an odd way to bring healing, isn't it? Why did God choose to deliver his people this way? He could have just waved his hand over them, said the word, and they would have been healed and saved. He could have made them do something big, a big offering, a show of sacrifice and generosity or obedience. Why did he choose this method? Why the bronze snake on a pole? What was God trying to communicate to them? What was God trying to say to us? To find the answer, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 3, the gospel according to John, where we find another story, which again teaches us something about God, about our need as human beings, and about how God saves us. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So let's pause for a second. So we got a guy here who's a Pharisee. 
uh, part of the group that was opposing Jesus and trying to publicly discredit him. And yet this guy, this Pharisee, cannot deny what Jesus is doing. He cannot deny that God is using Jesus, that God is working in Jesus and through Jesus. And his curiosity gets the best of him. So he goes to Jesus to find out about this. But he goes at night because he doesn't want people to see him with Jesus. Verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Jesus is talking about physical birth here. But the Spirit gives birth to spirit, spiritual birth. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus has told Nicodemus that he must be born again, and Nicodemus is confused by what Jesus is trying to tell him. What does this mean? And so Jesus tells him that, that he is talking about a spiritual birth, where someone is born again by the Spirit of God, a spiritual awakening, where God creates a new person, a new life, a new heart, a new spirit in the person who believes. But Nicodemus still doesn't get it. Verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And now this is where Jesus makes it crystal clear to Nicodemus and to us. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see what Jesus did there? Jesus takes the story of the snakes in Numbers 21 and he applies it to himself. He says that just like the bronze snake was lifted high on a cross on a pole, so will I be lifted high on a cross. And he says that just like the people were saved from death by looking at the bronze snake, so will people be saved by looking to me on a cross. You know, it's interesting to note that the symbol used by the American Medical Association is a caduceus, the symbol of two intertwined snakes on a pole. We see them when we go into the hospital or doctor's office, on, you know, in pharmacies, wherever. And that, that, that symbol of two snakes intertwined on a pole, it's meant to communicate that wherever you see that symbol, that that is a place where you can find help, and that is a place where you can find healing. And Jesus is saying that is what the cross is. It is a symbol of healing, of help, of salvation. It's a place where we look, the person that we look at, we look up to be saved. Now the people of Israel, when they looked up the bronze snake, they were saved. But what if they hadn't? What if they didn't look up? 
If instead they had looked down and looked at their predicament, looked at the snakes around them, focused on their pain and the situation they were in, and they did not look up for help, what would have happened? They would have perished. But all they needed to do was to look up. Now, going back to the medical field for just a minute here, how are you saved when you're bitten by a a poisonous snake and its venom is coursing through your body? By an anti-venom. And the anti-venom is created using the venom of snakes. So the very thing that could kill you is turned against itself, transformed and used to save you from death. And that's what Jesus Christ did to sin on the cross. The very thing that could and would kill you and me for our sin, Jesus took it upon himself and he turned it against itself. He transformed it. He used it so that we could be saved. That's what Paul confirms for us in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 5 through 15. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, in other words, we're dead in our sins, separate from God, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our, us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away and nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, other words there's, a, there's good news. There is a cure for the sting and the bite of death. And yet the first step to receiving that cure is to hear the correct diagnosis of the human condition, of our human condition, my condition. And the diagnosis is that we've all been bitten by sin. And the prognosis is that unless it is treated, that sin will lead to death. And despite all the medical advances and all our knowledge and technology, we cannot manufacture a cure for sin. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we try to be, no matter how good we are in comparison to others around us, we cannot avoid the consequence of sin, death and separation from God. For all, Romans 3.23 asserts, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. That's the diagnosis. That's the prognosis. In a sense, there's a snake outbreak in our world. And we've all been bitten. And yet today in Numbers 21, and in John 3, we hear the good news. And the good news is that on the cross, Jesus took all that Satan intended to harm us. And Jesus took it, sin, death, separation from God, And he nailed it to the cross. He took it upon himself and he nailed it to the cross as he hung there for you and me. And all Jesus says, all who look to him, all who look to the cross, all who look up and believe, all will be saved who do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And Lord, I confess to you that I have fallen short and I fall short on a daily basis. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your salvation. I know, Lord, that that's the the common condition that we all have. None of us is good enough, not one. 
And yet, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth to go to the cross and to hang there and to die for our sins so that we could look up and not die, so that we could look to you, look to the cross and not perish, but find healing in hope, in joy and peace, in eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us. We thank you. In your name, amen.